Hey, welcome to After Church Apologetics. I'm Courtney Seacrest here with Dr. Chris Jakeway and Pastor Leo Wilson, and we're inviting you to join us today in uncovering the truths that will challenge, inspire, and expand your perspective on Christianity. So let's get started. Hello and welcome back to After Church Apologetics. Today we're asking the question to Chris and Leo, is there a right way to read the Bible? Does it mean something different to everyone? How would you respond to someone who says, well, that isn't how I interpret it, or we all interpret things differently? You know, I think starting off the, the very first part of that question, Chris, I remember you years ago talking about this topic, and it made an impression on me where you said, you know, there's one proper way or correct way to understand what scripture says, and that's the way the author intended it to be understood. Right. Uh, No matter what you're reading, I mean, if it's the Bible, the Constitution, uh, instructions on how to assemble a bicycle, there's only one correct interpretation of anything you read. Uh, This is why we say things like, don't put words in my mouth, right? Because I don't get to decide what you mean, and you don't get to decide what I mean, and it's the same for any author. You know, in Matthew 22, Jesus says to the Sadducees, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures. He didn't say, decide for yourself what the Bible means. You know, the the application of a biblical principle might uh, vary from person to person, but the meaning doesn't. So our goal, as you said, is to draw the meaning out of the text exegesis, we call that, rather than put our own preferred meaning into the text, eisegesis. And so uh, the most important thing that we follow is exactly what you said. You know, these authors wrote with a purpose. What were they trying to tell us? That should be our goal. Years ago, I had uh, someone in a college class. We came to this point, and I mentioned the authorial intent issue, and she had just come from a literature class uh, right before that uh, section where they were talking about deconstructionism, philosophers like Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, and their position, postmodernism, their position was that the reader or the listener deconstructs the words or the text and then reconstructs them to mean whatever they want. Yeah, And so... I explain this thing about there's only one correct interpretation of anything. It's always interesting when somebody gets really upset in class because you have everybody's attention immediately. And uh, she said, well, I just came from a literature class, and she would say that you're wrong. And everybody's waiting to see what I'm going to say. And my response was, well, uh, the next time you're in that class, tell your teacher, I'm so glad that she agrees with me. And she said, no, didn't you hear what I, what I just said? She would say that you're wrong. Yes, I heard those words, but I said, if what she has taught you is correct, then I get to decide what her words mean. And I've decided she loves me and everything I say. But, but she doesn't, you know, she, and it's funny, her friend who was sitting right next to her said something like, dude, you're, you're making yourself look dumb here. Don't you, don't you see what's happening? The point is, all rational communication would break down if we didn't seek the intent of the author. 
this would be like blowing through a stop sign in your car and the police pull you over and say you didn't stop and you say, yes, I did. I stopped listening to music. It's only your interpretation of the stop sign, that stop your car thing. You know, I mean, this is like going in for the IRS audit. That's only your interpretation of the tax code. Well, only the authors means anything. So it's amazing what passes for Bible study where, you know, people read a verse and then you go in a circle and everybody gives a different me meaning for it. So definitely the first one is consider the uh, intent of the author. Of course, we'd also need to look at the context that should always be considered. The genre of literature, is it poetry, is it history? I've always liked 2 Timothy uh, 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So to do that, we would also consider the history behind it and any cultural issue that would help unlock it. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, it says they read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning, the background, in other words, so people could understand what was being read. And then the last couple points we would consider uh, would be the language. A good study Bible will have footnotes on this. If there's something in Hebrew and Greek, it doesn't mean you have to know those languages to understand the Bible, but sometimes light can be shut in a passage from that. Uh, and then finally, what's called the teaching principle that we'd want to consider as kind of a check and balance how a passage has been interpreted over the centuries. And I, I, I've had to say this to people a lot recently, where somebody will come up with an interpretation that's just totally unique. And I've said, uh, look, it's, I guess, not impossible that you're the only one who got that right in the 2,000-year history of the church, and every other Christian is wrong, but it's not likely. I mean, that should be at least a red flag, right, to recheck what we're doing. So it, it it's not the most important of all of them, but considering all five of those things, that last one being comparing it to how the church has taught it, uh, this is how we accurately handle Scripture. Yeah, I think sometimes people push back a little bit and like, well, but it could have meant this. And that's one of those situations where it's like, well, it could have meant that. But the question is, does does it mean that? Is that what that person was trying to say? So, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Like, well, it's possible to interpret it this way or this way. And it's like, well, yeah, you could. But once you understand the context or the author or to use your stop sign analogy, it's a traffic sign. You know, so there is a context there. It's what, what did they intend for you to stop? When you put up there, well, it could mean stop listening. It could, but it doesn't. <laughs> it, it, it meant something very particular. That well, second part of that, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, we'll, we'll never go wrong by seeking the intent of the author. Yeah, yeah, that'll always be a true guide. That second part of the question there where it says, can it mean something different to everyone? Kind of flows out of that, well, it could mean something. But I think people confuse like the idea of what it means to the application of yeah. it. You know, like, like, well, for me, that that would mean that I do this. And it's like, oh, yeah, you would apply it differently. The meaning is still the same. I remember before I was married and even before I had kids, 
certain passages would I wouldn't appreciate them fully, mm-hmm. right? I'd go through and read those things, and I'd be thinking about more about how I was the child and my parents were that way, and now it's reversed, right? And so that text means something a lot different to me now. Does it mean that the author's intent changed? No. It just meant the way I was hearing it, my stage of life, allowed me to apply it differently. But sometimes we get into that where we, we make that area a little gray, where it's like, well, it can mean multiple things. You can apply it multiple ways, uh, but there's still proper ways to apply it and not. I think also the thing that sometimes adds to confusion here is some people seem to want Scripture to be mystical, uh, like this multifaceted diamond where everybody gets their own meaning out of it. And they want to kind of muddy the waters where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.13, we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. I think sometimes people think it, if we somehow make it more mystical, that that seems spiritual, but they wanted to communicate clearly, and our goal is to seek what they wanted to tell us. Yeah, and and the response to that, too, when people are saying, it doesn't feel clear to me, well, some of those things are hard to apply, but I I think that we tend to, I've always said this in my, I didn't grow up as a Christian. And in my seeing and learning of scripture over the years, I should always take the easiest or like the the simplest understanding until I can study or prove otherwise, like take it as literal as I can when it's meant to be more literal. I know there's figurative, there's parables, there's, you know, apocalyptic kind of writing, but like in cases where it's saying something like a person should live this way, I'm better off taking that as literal as possible in my years of experience than I am trying to you know, make it shady or like there's a broad range of how that can be taken and until I see other ways of applying it. Yeah. And I think there's resources available too that maybe people don't realize. So instead of spending 20 bucks on a one minute a day devotional, you could take that same 20 bucks and buy a Tyndale commentary. And um, those have at least helped me make my way through scripture when things get hard for me to kind of understand what's going on. Yeah, that was huge. Uh, Chris knows a guy by the name of Eric Perry. He and uh, Eric helped me start studying and gave me an, uh, a commentary on the book of Acts by John Stott. And I remember sitting down reading that, and I loved it. Like, I was reading it, and I just thought it was so great to, to see Scripture presented at a guy who's a gifted teacher showing you things. Um, so, yeah, those those small purchases start a whole path of of buying books. <laughs> And then you're going to Baker Bookhouse every couple of months, and you're getting a stack as tall as me, which, which is, is five feet. Which is five feet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, while we're on that same subject, um, would you guys have any recommendations for people who are listening for like a good study Bible? Yeah, um, maybe I'll prompt you on this one, Chris. It's it's interesting to see all these different versions and translations and. You know, for different people, um, there are some people who, let's say they're younger, they don't have a a high reading level. I know the New Living Translation Mm -hmm. was written intentionally for somebody of an eighth grade reading level. And I know of uh, people who really appreciate that because they struggle sometimes to read. And so they can flow through it. Now, uh, when I remembered, when I started, somebody handed me a Bible the first time. It was a King James Version. And I, I really struggled with the thou, thy, and um, I don't know, it's just about me. I just struggled with it. I was like, 
maybe I don't like poetry as much or the, the Shakespearean type of thing. And so that was hard for me. But when I started getting into like the NIV, which is a more like not just a literal translation, but also they, they sought to make it so understandable to our present day culture where like an ESV translation or version allows you to have maybe more literal, like try to make it as much word for word. So culturally it might not apply as easily, but they were trying to be as true to the text in one form as possible. Chris, can you talk a little bit about how we got all these different translations? It's interesting how we have so many today. Uh, Some of them are done with different translational goals. On one end, there are formal language equivalences, and their goal is to make it word for word. And you might uh, automatically think, well, that would be the best, And certainly we want to do that as much as we can, but in some instances there are words where there isn't a direct one-to-one equivalence in the receiving language. Uh, You know, the example I've used in class before, if you're using English slang terms... uh, uh, Like crispy. (laughs) Like, like, like crispy. Uh, Which I heard Chris Courtney, told me I was never allowed to say again. <laughs> yeah. I heard Courtney say that once, and I, yeah. Um, say something like uh, the, the the word cool, like somebody, you know, gets a new car, and somebody says, hey, that's a cool car. If you're going to translate that into Mandarin for Chinese readers, and you used the Chinese word for cool, then that person reads that you're saying the car is of low temperature or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wouldn't make any sense. Well, the formal language equivalence translation basically has the strategy of it's up to you to figure out what these word mean. Uh, this word means we're just going to give it to you uh, word for word, where a dynamic language equivalence changes those terms to something that would make sense in the receiving language and then an optimal language equivalence tries to be uh, the balance of both. That's what the 1984 uh, NIV was, which was why that was so popular. I think the ESV is uh, good. They make a good study Bible. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, I think, is good. The main reason, and I think maybe this is what you're getting at, the main reason there are so many translations uh, is money. Uh, It's not that we need a 20th translation of the Bible. It's that it costs a lot of money for publishers to quote Scripture. It's not free, Uh, which sounds kind of strange, but unless it's the King James, and even then, updated versions of that are are copyrightable, uh, you have to pay to do that. So when Zondervan came out with the NIV, Uh, They made a ton of money because all these other Christian publishers who were writing devotionals and commentaries, in order to quote the NIV, they had to pay these royalty fees, typically per word. So all the publishers uh, seemed at relatively the same time to realize, yeah, we're going to have to lay out hundreds of thousands of dollars up front to put together a committee to make our own translation. Uh, But, you know, after four or five years, that's going to pay for itself, and we're going to be way money ahead. So Kriegel's then uh, uh, comes up with the 
ESV and Broadman and Holman have the uh, Christian Standard Bible, and now it seems like every Christian uh, book publisher has sure their has own one. translation. It's not that we need them, um, and they have to make them a little bit different to make it copyrightable. They're still probably 99% identical. Um, and that's, you know, I don't oppose capitalism, so <laughs> I'm fine with it from that standpoint. But I, I think the downside is it can make it seem like it's, you sort of make the Bible say whatever you want, and it can cause people to be cynical, like, well, you go to the Christian bookstore, there are 25 different Bibles, how am I supposed to know None of the last dozen translations made were needed. It was done for uh, uh, the purpose of not paying royalties by publishers. Yeah, I, and I think there are like like this passion translation yeah, that's been popular. Yeah, I was popular. just going to say that the uh, you know the New World Translation that Jehovah's Witnesses use. Like, we're not saying all translations are good, um, but uh, so many of these translations, like Chris said, they're they're practically identical, but it's just the copyright things behind it. So then the answer to the question of, well, which one's the best? It's like, well, there are differences between them, but the best one is the one you're willing to put in your hands and read. Mm -hmm. You know, but if that's one you're like, well, I feel like I can, I can get, I can read this one and it's just easier and it flows well, great, then read that one just so you can get more of God's word. Yeah, we'd certainly want to avoid any sectarian translation like the New World you mentioned. The Jehovah's Witness Bible, they take out all the references to Jesus being God and the Trinity and so on. And so, yeah, that that's something that a believer wants to avoid. Um, but even within legitimate Christian translations, uh, there are a lot more than we actually need. Courtney, what translation do you read? I have an NIV and a CSB because when I was in college, they made us have two translations to go back and forth. And the difference is just word order. It's just the same sentence rearranged, and it just says the exact same thing. The words are just in a different order. So what translations do you guys read? Uh, it's so sad that I have to say it like this. The NIV 1984 is the one that I carry that um, was given to me when I was becoming a Christian, and I've started to read that, and a lot of my commentaries um, are based around that one. And then uh, I also have a copy of the ESV that sometimes I go back and forth just to read, just to see how people maybe, you know, defined it differently, like you were saying, word order or what word is emphasized. How about you, Chris? I also like the uh, NIV, the 1984. Um, the CSB uh, I like. But I, I really haven't seen anything that was a necessary improvement from the NIV and and uh, how that's been been so successful. And as you mentioned, uh, so many commentaries uh, have been based on that for decades. That that tends to be the one I use. I was just searching on Amazon for the 1984 NIV, and they're not on there. So now I'm going to look on eBay. But the whole point is that you guys are saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't but matter. But I'm just curious. If, yeah. if somebody still wanted to go out and get one, couldn't they find one? Well, that's the fun part about Baker. Baker has a used book section. Oh, yes. uh, and I guess maybe that's a good point for everything. Commentaries and in other Bibles. If, you know, if, if you're on a budget, you're like, well, I'd like to get some, you know, Baker, Bookhouse, other places, you can find them used. Um, you know, they're still perfectly good. Uh, 
the Archaeology Study Bible was the uh, 84 NIV. Oh, you see, we have that. You see, you You gave it to us. Copies yeah. of that out there. Cool. Yeah, they're going for 30, 30 to $40 on eBay. Hmm. Yeah, the archaeology one, there's cultural ones. And, you know, the nice part about those is they put, like, little footnotes, but only, like, whole pages in the archaeology one about, like, hey, something that supports this passage of Scripture for the understanding. So those are fun to use as a study Bible, too. Awesome. Well, that is all we're going to talk about for today. So we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for hanging out with us on After Church Apologetics today. To submit a question for a future episode of our show, you can email us at podcast at bcfriends.org. Remember, the pursuit of truth is ongoing, so we'd like to encourage you to continue seeking and engaging with the topics that we've discussed for yourselves. And as we conclude this episode, we want to remind you that respectful dialogue can bridge gaps and build connections. We'll see you next time.